This episode is brought to you by Rad Dudes Who Love Nature. Welcome to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown. Hey, I'm Tony Crosdale. And I'm Nelson Melendez. Welcome, Nelson. Nelson, who are you? So, uh, I'm a graduate student at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, and I was asked today to speak a little bit about my research with uh, the endangered bog turtle, which is an endangered turtle species that's found in the Northeast. Mostly we just wanted you to hang out and, and add some commentary to what we're doing here today. Because we're going to get sick with each other, so we, <laughs> yeah. we, we bring it, we, we, we keep it live. You're a biology unicorn. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Well, it's nice to be here today and to add some, you know, my own little knowledge to everything that you guys do. Do you know what unicorn means? I can guess. Okay, we're going to leave it at that. You specifically have, you, know, you track these bog turtles. So, uh, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about two different organisms that were tracked. One with radio collars, one with GPS units, so you could add a little bit of, you know, feedback and, and you know, help us understand how, how tracking animals works. Definitely, yeah. So, uh, we're going to start with the comments. We've got a comment from Ian Helmswich from Lincolnshire in, in the UK. He says, uh, great show, but you guys should check out the... Kew Gardens History of London through 100 Lichens, mm. um, which sounds absolutely thrilling. In a minute, we're going to shift to, to um, hearing about a journal that when we started talking to people, actually, when we started talking to people in general, but also to the guy, Chris Mowry, who's the coyote guy we're going to hear from in this episode, he mentioned this. And then a couple other people emailed us around the same time about the launch of a journal called The Urban Naturalist, which seemed totally in our wheelhouse. Um, it's also funny because you, your column for Grid. I had a column for a while called The Urban Naturalist. <laughs> yeah, so, um, well, and I had a blog called The Radical Naturalist. There you go. We're naturalists all over. Um, and, and not the nudist kind. Not that we're opposed to that. Um, but we are going to listen to an interview with someone from The Urban Naturalist, Keith Goldfarb. Uh, and we'll do that now. Sure. I'm Keith Goldfarb, and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Urban Naturalist, as well as a number of other natural history uh, and archaeological journals, but our newest one is the uh, Urban Naturalist, um, which Thank focuses you. on uh, natural history of urban areas throughout the world. I was going yep. to compliment your herpetology focus so far. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, the first two were on herpetology. The first one was uh, on scour holes in the southeastern U.S. and how they're um, potentially important habitats for a lot of herp species. And uh, yeah. the second one is looking at lizard communities um, in Phoenix, Arizona. So yeah, yeah there's, there's been a, we don't have any control over of the, uh, the con. It's what we get, and uh, so that just shows that at least there is a, certainly a strong herp uh, focus among um, urban researchers. And I know there's also, uh, at least from what I've seen from the northeast and southeastern naturalists, there's been recently a fairly strong, you know, mammal, large mammal, um, with coyotes and other other animals actually kind of coming into the urban spaces. As urban spaces grow, they come in more and more contact with with what will have been more natural communities, quote-unquote, 
so you just get species coming in that might not have previously been found there and adapting. Yeah, and I, and, I think uh, we're also seeing maybe some of the, or at least my sense in talking to the, the coyote guys and, and, and reading up at least on on large predators in, let's say, Los, An- Los Angeles area is, is because if we're not so actively hunting them, then it's sort of a they rebound. Um, yeah, definitely. And, and also they, they, they start to realize that there's there are tremendous natural resources there for them. I mean, they're not natural, yeah. but tremendous, you know, <laughs> food resources that... that well, but it, it, it's, sort of, it's a fun discussion topic of, of what is it then? Is it natural? Is it, what is it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, no, and I mean, you look at, you know, for example, you look at a, a, a forest of any sort, a spruce forest that grows up in what had formerly been a field, you know, the spruce forest is, um, you know, dramatically <laughs> altering the landscape. Yeah. And so we're a species that's dramatically altering the landscape, and I think it's... For my opinion, it's not so much an issue of what's natural and what's not. It's just if you value the diversity of landscapes, you don't want anything to become too dominant. And I think yeah. that's the question is, is when one particular species has too much of an impact that it tends to wipe out certain other habitats that are no longer available. And that's, I think, yeah, for me, yeah. where the concern would come in. I mean, if the whole world got covered with, with spruce forests, I wouldn't think that would be a good thing because suddenly the diversity would go down to, you know, much less than it is now. I wouldn't think of the spruce as evil. It's just it's just not as a desirable situation. I think in terms of both overall sustainability for the planet, as well as for a number of species that would probably die off because they couldn't be adapted to that. And it's the yeah, same true right. with, with humans as a as a potentially major uh, influencing species on the planet. No, but it's our own, our own private monoculture. Yeah. So a broader question about natural history for you guys as a, as publishers of natural history journals. You know, there's been more writing, there's some writing lately, um, sort of pointing out the decline of natural history as a, as a discipline within biology, I guess. And that, mm-hmm. uh, as, as people focus more and more on molecular studies and on modeling, that there's less of, of, of people, of researchers getting out there or students getting out there and getting their hands dirty. And here you guys are expanding. Yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying. And I think that, I think what we're seeing would kind of, a little bit call into question that 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 view. I I think what I do see is perhaps maybe less of what one might say is traditional natural history, where you're just kind of a naturalist who's studying it just for the sake of studying it. You know, there's probably more applied stuff going on now. Okay. Um, and so you might, you know, in certain in some ways that way it's kind of shifting. But in terms of actually people doing field work and natural history that way, I mean, modeling that can be natural history too. And we get a lot of uh, articles that certainly incorporate a lot of modeling, although they often have uh, field components as well to get the data. But but it's all part of it, and we yeah. don't necessarily distinguish. But almost all our articles have a you know a fairly strong field component to it. And yeah, and we've been getting uh, increased submissions across the board. So that would seem to indicate that uh, there's still certainly a lot of active research going on. That good. <laughs> you know, by by anyone's fairly broad definition, would be pretty strong natural history. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> so, uh, I guess that sort of that wraps up sort of the questions I had prepared and, and was thinking of. Um, do you have anything that you'd like to mention? No, the only thing is for those who are who are um, you know interested in, in the natural history of urban areas, we strongly recommend you check out you know Urban Naturalist's website. While the articles are, they're, they're peer-reviewed scientific papers, so they're not all necessarily, you know, easy reading along the lines of something like a National Geographic. They're intended for the research community. Still, many of them have stuff that will be of interest to a wide range of people. And to get the journal 
going and off to uh, as much of a start as it can. We're, we're having it be open access, so for now anyone can access the articles without a subscription. And so I'll just give the website as uh, www.eaglehill.us, that's a .us site, slash U-R-N-A, that's ERNA, it stands for Urban Naturalist. So www.eaglehill.us slash ERNA. And on the homepage, you'll see on the right-hand side is a click for the articles. And for those researchers who may be listening, it's an excellent place to get your research out there. So that's about it. I just want to thank you very much for the time to talk to me. And, well, you thank know, we're... you for, uh, for talking to me and for all your good work in uh, promoting enthusiasm about urban natural history in Philadelphia and elsewhere. So that was neat. I mean, I think it's it's something that we might try to work in as we go forward, looking at articles that they have um, as discussion points. I like that we talk about the different ways to interpret urban, you know, nature. Yeah. But he's talking a lot about how like these animals are like as the as cities get developed, um, animals are kind of like forced to come in. How's also like- that? But the, but not just forced, but just that urban landscapes provide resources to. To um, to sort of let's call them wild or native animals that that other that that as long as we're not <clears throat> actively killing them or, or right. if there isn't something about a city that precludes their their sort of exploiting those resources they'll exploit them right mm-hmm. that, that's what I was getting at so yeah the coyote is an example of that yeah right and and just like, retail hawk I think it just took them a while to like get, you know stop getting killed and and just getting right. used to the cities and. And mm-hmm. different ones, like the behaviors to avoid you know, human activity were uh, selected out and some started coming well, That's in. an interesting question because you just hit on like the whole topic of whether, whether the animals that are living well in cities are selected or are somehow evolving in ways that make them more adapted to cities. Right. I mean, there's, there's... Or are they learning behaviors or is it, is it a question of like evolution or is it a question of... Um, what's the right word I'm looking for? Um, some nurture. Kind of, yeah, nurture or some kind of plasticity that they can yeah. adapt. We're going to talk to, um, we're going to hear an interview from a couple really neat, uh, uh, really college students, which is what we sort of hit us midway through the interview. We're talking not to like PhD candidates or something, um, about a cat tracking study based out of Raleigh dorm area, but sort of with, with national and international scope. And, um, and wait, wait, Raleigh Dorham, what a great area for urban wildlife. Mm-hmm. You know, cool area. All right, no problem. My name is Troy Perkins. I'm actually the head project coordinator for Cat Tracker. I deal with um, loaning out units to participants within the Raleigh Durham area and also as well as being a correspondent for do it yourself participants. Okay, and Rihanna, how about you? Uh, I'm Rihanna Gale, and I am the head coordinator for the Long Island participants. <laughs> Both Rihanna and I are undertaking this project as undergrad research. Mm-hmm. I'm right now a senior double majoring in zoology and fishery and wildlife science at uh, NC State University, while Rihanna... <laughs> well, I am a senior in natural resources concentration policy. <laughs> how, does this, um, how did your project start? This project kind of got started out of simple curiosity between um, two people 
our director of the Museum of Natural Sciences. Uh, his name's Roland Kays. He's been friends with one of the um, directors for the um, labs over at North Carolina State University, uh, Rob Dunn. He runs your wildlife program at NC State. Rob decided that he was going to go on a vacation, and he had always wondered about where his cat, Chicha, went. So Roland, being uh, the animal tracker he is, decided, let's just put a GPS unit on a cat, see where the cat goes. So that's what they indeed did. They put a GPS unit on Chicha, and while um, Dunn was gone on vacation, uh, Chicha went out and about, did her normal thing, uh, we got the unit back and the GPS data, downloaded it, and we found this one point that was just really far out there. We thought it was GPS error. Come to find out, when Rob took a look at it, he was like, oh, my God, that's where we used to live, about a mile away. So Chicha had traveled so far away, and we were all like, wow, if this is what cats are really doing, you know, they could be affecting potentially a large area for wildlife. So we decided... It would be really cool to put GPS units on people's pet indoor-outdoor cats and see where these cats went, if they were affecting native wildlife areas or if they were just hanging out in the alleys around the house, where they were actually going. Well, so you, this, this project from, from the start was about pet impact on wildlife. Yes. Are we, are we tilting with it when we say that? Is it like, you know, because I think Tony and I are coming in with our um, – with our bias to other wildlife, <laughs> you know, I'm 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 not a I'm a vegetarian for God's sake, and I still want to kill a cat. But I've noticed you guys are pretty gentle in your literature and how you present it. Um, you're not com- you don't seem to be coming at this from like you know cat are cats are out of control predators, but it's much but it, it seems to be more sensitively posed. I mean, how do you guys look at it? So typically, we want to look at with kind of a non-biased perspective. As scientists, we understand that cats are a predator and they're going out and they're affecting wildlife. We understand that. But we want to look more, I guess, in presenting it for our research in a more, uh, how do you put it, like non-biased non, way about cats will kill everything. That way we can get cat owners to participate with us. We don't want to be judging cat owners ahead of time and being like, oh, shame on you for letting out your cats, but will you still track? Will you still help us track your cats? So it's yeah. a very fine line that we try to walk. And maybe we should get all our, our cats on the table here. I don't actually have any cats. Tony, how many do you have? <laughs> uh, well, I have I have one. My, I, have a, I own one myself, Lola, um, and I live with another one, Spaz. All right. Rihanna, how many cats do you have? I actually have no cats, and Troy here has two. I have two cats. They live with my boyfriend's parents right now, but they are both indoor cats. Um, I do, however, have contradictions myself from my own personal life, as there's three TNR cats outside my apartment, and I do feed them. But I also have a bird feeder because I love my songbirds. And it's conflicting because finally reality came knocking on my door when one of the cats decided to leave me a nice little, you know, feathery present by my door. <laughs> so, so, so what are you guys finding in the study? Um, so far, pretty much the cats that we track, they all tend to stay 
right around the house. They're not venturing out in the forest. They're not going into nature preserves. They're sticking really close to the house, and it's been quite interesting. And you're not looking at feral cats, just purely house cats? Purely pet house cats, simply because it would be a little harder to uh, capture feral cats and make them wear a harness and retrieve (laughs) the data. (laughs) Have you noticed any differences when you're looking at cats in different kinds of settings? Like, are you getting people who are in, like, in the middle of cities versus suburbs versus out in the country? So far, we've stuck in um, all the people that have done the cat trekking. It's just been urban and suburban areas. We haven't really had a lot of rural participants yet. So what we noticed between the two, though, is the suburban areas, um, particularly one of our participants that lives half their life in Maine and the other half in Florida on the coast, um, that cat's name is Ruckus, so people can look up the tracks later. Uh, The cat itself stuck really close to the home but then started traveling along the beach side a lot compared to our urban cats that would typically just stick to one or two houses around them. They wouldn't go, like, venturing far off. Well, you just mentioned something I didn't quite understand. So tell us about how people can go online and check out Ruckus's uh, wanderings. Oh, yeah. So um, we actually have our own website, cats.yourwildlife.org. Um, That website has all of our cat participants there. You can see the cat tracking maps. It's um, through uh, movebank.org, which tracks all sorts of animal wildlife and is open to the public. You just have to sign on, look at it. Through our website, you don't have to sign on. You can just click the cat tracks page, and it'll pop up with all our participants, all of the ones that are do-it-yourselves, Long Island, and our local Raleigh-Durham participants. So what's so special about Long Island? unique because it's the only place in North America that coyotes have not been established. Um, Last year, there were a couple sightings, but as of right now, there's no evidence that coyotes are breeding, that there's no permanent um, population in Long Island. And so we really want to see how that is affecting the cat's home ranges. Um, How Troy mentioned earlier, uh, we want to see if the cats are going into the forested areas, the parks and reserves. We can compare that with Long Island. Um, is it because there's no coyotes, or is it just because cats tend to avoid those areas? So it's a very, very unique study ground that we have. And I actually just got one cat track back today. So Yay. first one, super excited. <laughs> um, it was interesting because it, it actually showed that the cat was not going into the forested areas. So it's definitely something that we're going to keep an eye on in the future cat tracks. And what kind of mortality? Have you seen with the have all the cats that you're tracking in uh, North Carolina? Did they have any of them been killed or predated that you know of? Uh, interesting about that. So none of the cats that we have tracked, like our past cats, have had anything happen to them. However, out of about 400 that have signed up. Um, now, the signups are including Long Island and Do It Yourself, which is from all over the country and other parts of the world. Only four people have um, emailed us back saying that either the cat has gone missing or that a car has hit their cat. You've got the, the you've got sort of targeted, I mean, you're targeting Long Island, um, but you have sort of a targeted program and a DIY. Can you talk about the two different tracks? Yes. Yeah, so... Cat Tracker itself, um, it started out as a local 
loaner program to just the Raleigh-Durham greater area within North Carolina. And from there, we've kind of started expanding slowly. Um, right now, we have a sister project over in New Zealand. So um, the, our New Zealand collaborators are doing their own project, and they'll be handing out, like, loaner units to people in New Zealand. But now we've just expanded to Long Island. Um, we've got other sister cat tracking projects for loner parts that hopefully cross our fingers will be popping up within West Virginia, um, Connecticut, and California. Um, in order to satisfy people that really want to participate in this, since it is a citizen science project and we want it available to everyone, we do have a do-it-yourself method, which just involves um, people signing up, filling out a questionnaire for the cat, and then buying these $50 GPS units, which are pretty cheap in our area. And you take these units, you put it on an H-cell harness, and you just follow the directions that are on our website. You can watch the directions in our videos, and you can also email us because we're always there. And we help people through the do-it-yourself process, and they'll send us the information. Or if we have a loaner program, we'll go out, track the cats ourselves, and then get the information back, and we send out to each participant their cat's own map of their tracks. And how many total cats have you tracked so far? So far, 60 cats. Cool. And that's since you, April is pretty much when our, our whole program got started. Oh, just April? Okay. <laughs> Not too bad. <laughs> no, it always makes me feel better when I haven't heard of something that is really recent, and I don't feel so dumb for not having heard of it. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it really didn't get publicized until around April once all of our IRBs and whatnot got passed, and then we started um, going through yourwildlife.org, which is a huge citizen science project area. So within that, we are hoping um, to track a 1,000 cats. So that is our grand goal in this whole project. Previous studies that involve cats and cat research, cat tracking, it's extrapolated from just the smallest studies. So we want to make it as large as possible, um, and we'll try and get there in a year. Yeah, I mean, right now, um, according to our director, we have the largest cat study all of, like, all the cats. So a 1,000 mm -hmm. would be the largest cat study of all of the cat studies combined together. You seem very concerned about how far they go and in terms of going into, like, wild areas, but in these suburban air areas where you can actually have a fair amount of birds nesting in yards or migrating, and also the small mammals, I mean, in your opinion, do you think it's a wash in terms of, like, the wildlife that are in backyards that these cats are inhabiting compared to, like, the, the potential impact for, you know, bigger uh, green spaces? Or do you think it's not really a concern about the backyard wildlife? I think it depends on the region that these cats are in because different regions have different um, endangered species or threatened species, and then you have to get into the fact, okay, well, certain areas maybe – you know, for like Raleigh, there's monarch mm -hmm. butterfly areas. Say if cats were eating those, then that's still, you know, a major impact. I mean, that's what's found around your house. If cats are eating lizards and songbirds, I mean, it can still decline those populations, even though they're not going into these wildlife, like, conservation habitats. Well, there um, is a um, small part of our project. Uh, it's not a huge portion right now. It's only about 15 participants, but we do... Um, diet collection or fecal collection for um, participants within the Raleigh-Durham area. <laughs> partner up with um, the veterinary college 
medicine <laughs> sciences at NC State, and they do fecal floats and look over um, genetics and whatnot with the fecal samples that are collected. And then we're also sending them off to another research state that's analyzing the genomics of cats as well. Yeah, I remember seeing something about the cat poop on your website. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a lot. People sending us poop mail. <laughs> oh, come on. Just have them fill it up real good. It'll be fine. I think they would flag us. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else that you want to, interesting findings coming in so far that you want to share? Well, I think what's interesting is cats have their own personalities. I mean, that's we know this, and that's what we're finding because it's shown in their movements. They're all highly varied. I mean, yes, generally they stick close to home, but there are some cats, like Chicha that I mentioned earlier, that takes these trips way off the grid. So, you know, if it's just 10% of these cats that are doing that, then that's still a significant amount of cats that could affect a larger area of wildlife. So even though, yes, cats may stick, you know, closer to home, there's still an outlier of cats, a significant portion that could affect more wildlife. You know, as you're doing this research, um, it, it may be stuff you you don't know directly through your research and you found it other ways, but... Um, can you speak to ways that, like, that we should tell cat owners to to help ensure their cats live in harmony with with uh, the other wildlife outside? So this was an interesting question that you guys posed to us earlier. Um, actually, I've had quite a few people that we were talking about in our do-it-yourself participants, and some of them try the whole like colored bib thing for birds. One participant said that totally changed the fact that she didn't see any kills, not to say the cat didn't kill and he just didn't bring it to her, but she didn't see me while that was on. Personally, I think the only way to solve the whole wildlife issue is simply keep your cat indoors, you know? Um, if you want to let him out and, you know, try to satisfy that wild side urge she's got going on, then why not build an outdoor enclosure that they can't escape from? I know a couple of people that have kind of built like a tunnel, like through their attic, out into the backyard. Granted, that takes some money, but to me, it's a better investment in my pet cat because I wouldn't have to worry, A, that the cat's going to get run over by a car, or B, eaten by a coyote, or C, killed tons of wildlife in the process. This is great, and I look forward to uh, um, catching up with you when you get some more findings in and see where this is going. Thank you very much, guys. Um, uh, have a Have a wonderful evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Ow! Citizen science! Uh, I messaged Troy this morning, and she got back to me about some updates. So she said they're, about, they're now up to about 140 cats tracked within 10 states in the U.S., and over 600 owners are signing up around the world. They've got, you know, expansion on the Australian and New Zealand side of it. Ramping up the Long Island efforts with 12 tracks and 15 more ready to get tracked very soon. They're shooting for 50 by the end of June, which is pretty soon. And then putting a priority on barn cats and cats that live in rural areas, which, which you know, sort of outside our purview, but still interesting. And non-neutered cats. I guess that would be interesting to see differences between neutered and non-neutered cats. So then they've expanded tracking in Europe. Um, and we'll throw some links in for those pro projects. Reaching out to owners of kleptomaniac cats, so cats that steal stuff. 
They want they want your cat burglars. And our favorite part, the poop mail, has not taken off. Um, That's rough. I know it's rough, but they've discovered something cooler to study. You ready? So what they're doing is having people send in samples of the cat food and samples of the cat hair. So they can do, if I'm using the right word, stable isotopes analysis. Exactly. They'll see if the cat hair mirrors what's in the cat food. And if it doesn't, it means they're eating wildlife. Exactly. That is badass. I was really impressed by that. That's awesome. Hey, hey Nelson. um, Yes. Talk to us a little bit about tracking. Like, how does tracking animals work and what kind of data do you get from that and how do you interpret it? Like, so you, you rate these are GPS units. You on the cat, on the cats, right? Yeah, they yeah, put they collars GPS. on them. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, but you, um, you radio tracked these turtles, right? Again, what we did was that when we found these turtles for the research for the project to be able to, to analyze their diet, um, relocate them and get samples of them as much as we could in one season, we would put a transmitter and paste it onto their onto their their carapace. Using an carapace means on the top of their shell. There, there. Mind you, if a turtle so small, the transmitters are made to be. It's like the size of a hockey puck. Yeah, the the transmitters are about a hundred grams, a hundred to hundred and ten ish grams. And Learn your metric. <laughs> <laughs> and they and they, the transmitters are are made to be less than six percent of their weight, so they can still move normally fine, you know, fine with them. Um, and what we did was that we would then uh, use a frequency number from that transmitter and weekly we would um, recapture the turtles using a, um, an antenna that was attached to a transmitter which we would put in the frequency in and then as we got close to where the turtles were by punching into that, that specific frequency using the antenna and this receiver, the receiver emits a sound and the louder... Beep, 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 yep. beep, beep, beep. And the louder and, and stronger the signal gets means that you're close to the turtle. So then when you get close enough that you find it, you can either disattach the antenna and just use the wire itself to then pinpoint the turtle in, in the peat substrate that the turtles are usually found. Or Peat substrate means like mud. Yeah, like well, it's, muck. It's muck. Like, like spe- organic. Yes, it's broken down speck and moss, right? Yeah. Um, so hopefully most of the time we were able to find the turtles and then... Um, put them bucket. At least when it goes back to radio tracking, it's inter- it's interesting to see um, the differences between tracking a turtle or or reptile as compared to a mammal. Well, in yeah. a domestic mammal, it's like I think anyone who listens to this who does tracking is gonna be like, "This is so easy." It's like the owner just like grabs the cat and puts the collar on it. It's not like you gotta tranquilize a bear in the woods <laughs> or like find a bog turtle under a root system. It's like. Oh, hey, Fluffy, come here. If I keep drinking more of this vodka, you're going to have a tranquilized bear right here. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting, too, because they because they can just obtain Take the collar, they can obtain the collar, and all the and that whole, and all the GPS data is there. There's just so much more to collect. Oh, it makes it easy, yeah. Then if you're studying you know, a reptile where that you have to go to that site whatever amount of times a week and locate it yourself instead of being able to obtain this data and, you know, create this huge sheet of, of all its movements, which is interesting and definitely makes it 
more convenient and able to collect more out of that, which is cool to see that that project is starting to grow so much more and, in other countries. And, and what, what I think is also neat about it is it's sort of the application of like wild, what I'll call wild animal tracking techniques to domestic, quasi-domestic animals. And I think this is the point where you didn't mention this before. Synanthropic organism. Exactly. So our synanthropic organism of the episode is the domestic house cat. One of which is going nuts behind yeah, us. <laughs> the cute little black cat is just doing laps. Bobo's like... Like jumping on the kitchen counter onto the... <laughs> top of the cabinets. Yeah. And and Bobo's cool. going nuts. In perfect timing, really, Bobo. He couldn't have done better. Uh, the, uh, the idea that, that, you know, cats are pets, but also that, you know, the, the sort of the, the theories I've, or hypotheses I've seen about cat domestication start with the idea of cats... You know, like some wild species, European wild, whatever European wildcat, you know, hanging, hanging around human encampments, human cities, or human towns, human settlements, um, and sort of becoming adapted to human settings, and then being brought into human households. Um, and, and so you see that sort of wild, feral, domestic spectrum mm-hmm. Even in cats in the United States, I'm sure Tony, you got stories from, from yeah, I don't know. You see cats in Southeast Asia where you toured and like. Oh man, I mean, I, I don't know if I told the story already. Where like, I'm in Bangkok, and um, it's gonna break your heart, Billy. Um, I'm in Bangkok, and um, you know, there's the Tokay geckos, and they're like cacao, <laughs> and um, I really wanted to see one because I kept hearing them all over. Yeah. And the guy's like, oh, they breed in like my yard, and there's like a he's like corrugated fiberglass and he pulls it back and they cement their I don't know if it's alive or whatever they cement their eggs to the to, to yeah. the wall yeah yeah. And but there was a bunch of babies that had hatched and a Siamese cat which is funny because they're in Thailand a Siamese <laughs> cat just bam whacks a gecko and, and just like eats it right I was like what I'm like this is crazy synanthropic organism so on that note we're gonna shift uh, Troy made a slight mention in there about um, what can happen now to a cat such as being eaten by a coyote. Mm. Um, and so we're going to segue to a coyote researcher who, true to his, true to, I mean, we got to be sensitive to this, is himself making clear that coyotes do not frequently eat cats. They are a small portion of their diet, but still that cats can be, and human, and cat owner behavior can be influenced by the presence of coyotes. Hey, Tony, before we get into this, um, tell us your your famous coyote story. So, this is probably about 20 years ago. I was walking up to take the L shuttle back home from South Street, and I'm probably wearing a studded, a jacket, <laughs> studded jacket and a bolt belt. Uh, <laughs> so, and I'm walking up from South Street, which is where the punks hung out in the 90s. And I get to walk up 2nd Street, and, about, and this is about 1 in the morning, 2 in the morning, so, and I see... Walking down Spruce, you know, on the sidewalk of Spruce Street, I see a little, a, you know, like a dog, about 30, 40 pound dog. And I'm like, that's a cool looking dog. Where's the owner? There's no owner. Um, the dog keeps looking back at me, slinking, slinking down the road, looking back, his tail between his legs. And I'm like, that is a coyote. <laughs> and this is like pre internet. So I go home and I like look in my books because I was still way in nature then. And I was like, wow, this is a coyote. And they even mentioned that they, they always keep their legs, their tail between their legs. Yeah. And, you know, 
I have seen countless coyotes since then. Pennsylvania, Jersey, New York State, out west, all over out west. I've seen so many coyotes now, and it's absolutely a coyote was what I saw. And this is, for context, where you saw it is one of the most urban areas of a big, densely populated city. Right. I mean, this is like skyscrapers. This is like, this is the the, high rise apartment buildings. This is like the colonial houses. Um, but like the next block over it was Society Hill Towers. It yeah. Was like, mm-hmm. This is like right in the heart of like. This is not a forest. This is not like wooded backyards. This yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no backyards. Yeah. This, yeah. is, this, is, this is tiny little colonial, I mean, narrow colonial row, you know, houses in, you know, cobblestone streets even. You know, like this is, this is as urban as it gets. What happened to the cow? Well, after you saw it, what happened? I just kept slinking down the street. Yeah. Did it move at all, or just? Oh yeah, it was, it, it was. It was. It was slinking down the sidewalk on Spruce Street. Wow. Cool. And so that's the. With that, we'll, we'll we'll head into our interview. Yes, my name is Chris Mowry. I'm a professor of biology at Berry College, uh, which is located in Rome, Georgia, which is just outside of Atlanta. So I've been here for 20 years, and I've been studying coyotes for about 10 years in Georgia, in both Georgia uh, as well as in Yellowstone National Park as well. It's an interesting uh, combination of perspectives sort of in their sort of natural setting as well as where they've been expanding into. So it's been fortunate to have that perspective, and I didn't necessarily set out to have that. It just kind of uh, evolved into that, but yes. How did you get into studying coyotes? So... I was here at at Barrie, and to be perfectly honest, I really did not know that coyotes were in the area. And when I first got here about 20 years ago, I was out one evening, and I heard these, you know, strange sounds, which didn't really register with me at first, then started to think, you know, wonder what that is. It sort of sounds like coyotes, but I had not grown up with coyotes, so I wasn't all that familiar with them, but it just... I think most people are sort of have some understanding or idea of what they sound like. And then I kind of realized that that's what it was, but, but again, didn't really think a whole lot about it. But it was a student who got me involved who was interested in canids in general. He was sort of interested in pursuing what was going on with coyotes in this particular part of the world. He'd actually gone out and spent a summer in Montana, I believe, work, doing an internship with a guy who was studying wolves. So that kind of furthered his interest. He came back and asked me, hey, what do you think about us looking at coyotes? So we just started here on this 26,000 acres of land by doing very simple things like picking up scat and then setting out camera traps and then trying to induce howling and making some recordings and then got into a little bit of analysis of those sounds that we were uh, were recording with some mathematicians and just kind of built that up. And then this same student went out for another internship with an organization called the Yellowstone Ecological Research Center, which is based in Bozeman, Montana. And their director, Dr. Bob Crabtree, has been working in Yellowstone with coyotes for for over 20 years. And so the student went out and worked with them. I got to be friends with them. They had me come out. And then they ended up providing radio collars for us. So we kind of here uh, ramped up our studies and began to trap and, and radio collar coyotes on campus and started to follow them around. So, you know, it just has kind of gradually built up over the years. Yeah, they were historically west of the Mississippi River. And so they started to come 
eastward for a number, well, really for three reasons, all human-induced, of course. So the first was the eradication of their top predators, so wolves, and then habitat modification by humans. So, you know, conversion of forested land to agricultural land, and then also urbanization as well has also played into coyotes' favor. And then probably some translocations by humans, but, you know, maybe some of it's inadvertent, but there are certainly people that have brought coyotes from the West and release them for, you know, again, a variety of reasons, mainly for hunting purposes or for training dogs to chase them around and, you know, other kinds of things. So, you know, you wipe out the predator, the the natural predator, and you make habitat that is favorable to them, and it's just been a a gradual progression eastward. And so now they're found, uh, you know, in all states, except for Hawaii, (laughs) all states in the east. And in all kinds of environments. How will they kind of get on that translocation to Hawaii then? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm sure it won't be long. What brings us to talk to you today is the phenomenon of, of coyotes in, in urban settings. And it's something that I hadn't really thought a whole lot about. I mean, in, in Philly, we'll talk about coyotes, Tony's sighting in a minute, but the, that there's been evidence of them in what we might think of as the wilder areas around Philadelphia. But then when I've read about, let's say, the Chicago coyote populations and whatnot, um, yes. but they seem to be comfortable in much more urban areas. Can you talk a little bit about how they behave, where, where you see them in urban areas and how they behave, and what does an urban coyote act like and look like? Yeah, well, you know, the thing is is that, that coyotes, as I say, are extremely adaptable animals. So they'll, they'll eat just about anything. So access to food, whether it's garbage, trash, you know, dumpsters, bird feeders that are attracting rodents, uh, crops, you know, gardens, uh, compost piles, you know, all of these things can be food for a coyote. So, you, you know, so again, you're talking really about an omnivore, and then you're talking about an animal that has a fairly short generation time. So they're seasonal breeders, coyotes are, and so they they generally breed in the in the early winter time, and then there's a two-month gestation period, and so you've got pups born in, in the spring. And those litter sizes can be fairly large. We've been watching a group in metro Atlanta of of seven pups that all seem to be doing well. They, we first saw them, I guess, wow. about beginning of June, end of May. They are living in a – it's a neighborhood, but it's a pretty urban neighborhood. And they, they May I ask what – I used to live in Atlanta. May I ask what, what neighborhood? Uh, yeah, it's in the Reynolds Town neighborhood, which is so it's really just uh, north of I-20 and west of the the I-75-85 corridor. So I mean, we're really talking about huh. you know very close to downtown Atlanta. So these animals, you know, they have so they potentially have lots of food. As I say, their their generation times. I'm not talking about urban coyotes now. I'm just talking about coyotes in general. You know, but they're theoretically you know, reproductively active in their first year. They can be. So they're born in the in the late spring. So by the time the winter time comes around, an individual is, is sexually mature and could potentially breed. Now you know, unless it has territory and a mate, that's not going to happen. So, you know, how often that would happen I'm not sure. It's hard to say. But point is is that you can have lots of coyotes in a fairly short period of time. So if you think about that from an evolutionary perspective, 
their ability to adapt and and you know for selection to act upon these populations can be a, a fairly rapid pace and so you know they become very adaptable around humans they change their behavior they they generally go crepuscular so or are active at night you know become more nocturnal to avoid interactions with humans so they're they're very good at altering their behavior you know at finding food at really avoiding humans but problem comes when they've overcome their their fear uh, of humans so if they're being fed whether it's intentionally or inadvertently being fed or they have some reliable access to food you know just like any other wild animal and and then that resource becomes interrupted or taken away now i've lost my fear of humans and so now i'm going to find out what's going on or or i've i've come to associate humans with food so i'm going to hang around here you know hoping to find food and and that's when we maybe see problems with cats being taken or small dogs or things like that but people have to remember that those are not those are not natural food items for coyotes and think that that taking those kinds of prey is really something that is that develops over time. There's a, sort of this progression of what, what has at times been referred to as a progression of aggression. And, you know, generally coyotes <laughs> are trying to avoid humans and just trying to live their lives. And so, again, are not aggressive and really want nothing to do with them. So I think part of why we, we find coyotes fascinating is their potential to eat outdoor cats. Tony, what do you think about that? But I heard that there's a study that in urban areas well, suburban areas that have a coyote population, there's a higher bird population because there's the idea that there's less cats because the coyotes are producing the cats. And the study I think you're referring to is is uh, by Crooks and Soulier, um, and it was based in California in, in the San Diego area. I think that might be the study that you're referring to. And So they looked at chaparral patches, and they found that areas that had coyotes actually had higher bird populations because of this phenomenon of mesopredator release, or in other words, so it wasn't necessarily just cats, although cats were considered mesopredators, but, you know, the idea being that the presence of coyotes kept the population levels of these so-called mesopredators that might prey upon birds, you know, ground-nesting birds, you know, usually it would probably be egg predation. And so you're right, it's keeping those numbers low, and so therefore the bird populations are able to increase. So, yeah, you know, coyotes often get a bad rap, and, and I'm certainly not here to, I'm not trying to defend them or vilify them, you know, either way. I'm just simply a scientist who's trying to learn more about them. But I think it's it's very important for people to realize that in many areas, particularly in the eastern U.S., you know, these are relatively new animals to the ecosystem, and we don't know for sure how they behave and, and what effects they're having, you know, what are their trophic interactions, what are they eating. It does cause a lot of concern and consternation among the public. So, so when we start talking about coyotes in, in urban areas, and when I say urban areas, I really mean urban and suburban areas where there are high population, human populations, you get a lot of mixed reactions. You know, some people really like it, and uh, just the fact of seeing them, you know, some people think that they have ecosystem benefits, like I'm talking about, where they're controlling, you know, rodent populations, for example, or you know, helping bird populations. Other people, you know, are extremely concerned and think that they're, they're, you know, affecting prey 
animals like deer populations and turkeys and you know so hunters get very upset about it and uh, and then cat owners pet owners as well and we just really don't know uh, i would argue that that the jury is still out and and you know it's just obviously going to depend on the location and and the parameters that are going on within a particular area chris can you yeah. talk a little bit about the actual research project that you're doing in atlanta sure our interest is first of all to try to understand people's perceptions of and attitudes towards and experiences with coyotes in urban and suburban areas. So we're kind of targeting the metro Atlanta area right now. So we've we started by a survey, um, instituting a, an electronic survey that we're distributing online that asks people those kinds of questions. You know, what are your attitudes? And then starting to ask them questions about their personal experiences. You know, have you had an experience with a coyote? You know, what was that experience? Hearing it, seeing it, have you ever lost a pet? Uh, you know, have you ever been bitten by one? You know, and on and on. You know, just collecting that kind of data right now, and then we're, we're hoping to map that data. So working with uh, GIS, looking at patterns of potential hotspots of activity, let's say people living close to stream corridors or green spaces or things like that, you know, that particularly see coyote activity. So we kind of felt like that was the place to start. And, it, and in fact, a study like this has gone on in, in the Denver metro area, and they're about five years ahead of us, and so they've been very good at, at sort of advising us. And so that's what we're doing right now. Neat. Um, probably a great segue to if Tony were filling out that survey. Tony, tell us about your coyote sighting. Yeah. Well, you know, personally, I have no doubt that you did because, uh, you know, particularly, as I say, in the Northeast, they've been there for a while. You know, we've been seeing them here in Georgia, you know, for the past 20 years. As I, as I mentioned, you know, it was 20 years ago that I first started noticing them um, in this area. And so, you know, you guys would have had them up there more than likely sooner than we did. And, uh, you know, as I said, I, I think once they've become established, clearly they have become more prevalent. You know, we see them in urban environments all the time, and, and certainly out in Chicago where they've been studying coyotes. Stan Gert has been studying coyotes for a number of years, has great stories of watching coyotes cross seven major highways, you know, in an evening. And, um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they really have no problem dealing with urban environment. They're smart animals, and they, they know how to avoid humans, and they know where to look for, for food. And as I say, you know, there are lots of opportunities to look for food in an urban environment. So so I really would think that you that you did see one. Well, I, I do. I, I'll, I'll, I'll mention all the things I'm curious about real quick. And yeah. we'll see if we can go there. I'm curious about um, what is the urban coyote diet. Another um, thing I'm curious about is how they disperse through the urban environment. Like what the train, do they go... Will they walk through streets, or will they tend to go by, like, streams or by railroads? And the other thing I'm really curious about is, that I know that in Chicago, they thought that when they actually studied them, they realized there's way more of them than they realized. I'm, I'm curious yeah. about their, their secret behavior versus in, in population and how well they can steal their numbers. I'll second all of those as good questions. Yeah, I'm interested. Yeah. To... Okay, well, so as far as so the, the urban diet, again, all kinds of things to eat, uh, trash and, um, you know, 
pet food that is outside and getting into dumpsters. And, you know, we have found that bird feeders, again, that would attract rodents to the bird feeders would be a source of food. And and things like roadkill, just collecting along the side of the road would be uh, an opportunity for something. Gardens, this group that we've been watching in town, Atlanta, we've got pictures of them up on their hind legs pulling figs off of a fig tree, believe it or not. So just ingenious little buggers, you know, so, so, you know, you name it, whatever they can find, they'll eat it. How much of the diet is is still hunted? Good question. I mean, that's a good question, and I don't have a good answer to that. And so, you know, that's something ideally we would like to look at. You know, we might be able to detect that by, by, you know, scat analysis, but that's a good question. But, you know, you would figure in an urban environment, you know, rats, around and things like that, I would suspect that there are still opportunities to go after small mammals. But as I say, we're watching this group of seven right now, and it's just going to be very interesting to see how long they stick around, you know, when um, because we're, we're routinely still seeing them, and when do we start to see dispersal? And, and I will say this is near a rail line, and so um, it does have, you know, it does provide them an opportunity for dispersals. So we'll hope to learn a little bit more about that. Yeah, you know, I, I just read recently that, um, you know, Chicago uh, estimated 2,000. I don't dispute that. I, I really, as far as Atlanta, it's hard to say. Boy, it's just a hard thing to get a handle on because, again, because of the elusiveness of them and, and the fact that these, this is not a you know heavily studied animal and they're recent immigrants you know to many of these ecosystems. And so I will say that something that we have noticed is that when when people hear them, if you and this is really more in rural environments, but also you know I guess in suburban environments, people will hear them howling at night sometimes in response to a siren or or whatever. I know from personal experience, it sounds like, oh, there's a dozen of them out there. You know, well, from some of the recordings and analysis we made, what sounded like a dozen or, you know, many coyotes really ended up only being, you know, four or five individuals. And and from, again, what we know about their their social groups, it is a, an alpha male and female and then those pups, but, you know, they're not living in large extended family packs. Now, there there can be offspring from the previous year that might stick around and, and help out. But, but you know, again, from, from all that we know, they're not forming as large a groups as, say, wolves form. But, again, this is part of the reason why we want to study them is because, you know, we're talking about an animal in a new habitat that is fairly, you know, recent. All right, guys. Thank well, you. Thanks for being here. Uh... Our first um, collaborative guest. <laughs> My pleasure. Um, and, uh, and 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 we look forward to hearing a lot more about the research you're doing in Atlanta. Well, that's great. Well, I certainly appreciate you guys tracking me down. Since we recorded that in the beginning of the winter, I had an, an encounter with a dead coyote where a buddy, a herping buddy, and I were about to drive out of the town, and he was starting. We were starting off in a neighborhood called Germantown. Um, cutting through basically Mount Airy and into Roxborough. These are northwest Philly neighborhoods. It's a beautiful, absolutely beautiful section of Philadelphia. So like a lot of row houses um, with a big wooded park in the middle called the Wissahickon. Um, and we were... It's a go- absolutely gorgeous park. Gorgeous park. So we're crossing over a bridge that goes over the park, Walnut Lane Bridge, and we get to the base of it, and like we're driving, and we're like, "That's a dead coyote! Pull over!" <laughs> so we wow. we hop out of the car, 
Um, we took pictures. Uh, I showed it around. They're gory pictures. We're still going to post it to the website because it's a badass picture. Um, and the thing was like streaming like scarlet red blood. So it was like very freshly hit. Um, Viewer discussion advised. <laughs> right. So <laughs> younger viewers might not want to look at this. Um, but it's, uh, it, it was interesting because it was, there's no, de- no debating. <laughs> it was the coyote and it was, we got good pictures of it cause it was dead. And I was emailing with, um, some wildlife officials. Basically the idea, the, the lesson is that, um, there have been spotty sightings around the city. They're getting more common and there are now more better doc, they're documented, um, like family groups raising pups, mm-hmm. um, let's call it further out in the fringes of the city, but still like with the Wissahickon as a big creek corridor park, is like it's sort of a, a, a channel like right through northwest Philly. Yeah, but this, this so, park starts, you know, it goes from the board, the, the Northwest Avenue is the border of, of Philadelphia yeah. Montgomery County. The, it's, it's a deep, it's a really steep gorge river event. I mean, a stream valley um, that goes from the border of Philly, Montgomery County, to almost center city. And Montgomery County is still suburbs. What other places would be more? We're snobs here. What other places would call urban for sure? But still, we call it the suburbs. Yeah, like Raleigh looks like 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 Montgomery County. Yeah, yeah, like you know, I mean, like it looks like Montgomery County. Yeah. So this was undoubtedly a coyote in Philly. They're breeding more and more. It's interesting to see what happens as they really like really get more in, embedded and entrenched in the city. Mm-hmm. We talked about it. There's you know the coyotes out east aren't pure coyotes. They have wolf and dog DNA in them. Yeah, and I finally able- watched that documentary. The koi, koi dogs, koi wolf. Cool. Thing. Yeah. And so we're like so if you look at the and this is something we talked about with Chris, the ones in Atlanta they don't seem much. They're not bigger. They're right. like, and so the the idea is that the coyotes that they see in the Northeast and like in Canada picked up, I'm going to get three, timber wolf genes. Well, maybe not. Not gray wolf, but no, timber no, no, wolf. No, timber wolf, timber wolf, gray wolf are just synonyms. No, um, no, but there's two species of wolf. There's Algonquin wolf. Algonquin the wolf? The Eastern Canada wolf are Algonquin Thank wolf. Thank you. Okay. There, there's a, so wolves from like Manitoba West and also maybe south of the Rockies in New Mexico are like, Canis lupus proper, like gray wolf. Right. Um, and it seems like there's evidence to support that notion that wolves from southeast Canada are different subs or different species yeah. of wolf. And they might actually be the same species as the red wolf right. of the of the south. Reading the same thing. Yeah. So And then that the coyotes are more closely related to our eastern wolves than to the western wolves so that as they have expanded east they've encountered more genetically close relatives and been able to interbreed with them right um mm-hmm. and but then the but those coyotes are the ones sort of if you think of like a, a a big line coming from the west through canada down to the northeast and mid-atlantic united states the ones that are also have been expanding straight west from further south where they wouldn't be encountering those wolves, wolf populations they could interbreed with. So you might have, so the, the, so that's all consistent with Chris talking about how the ones we're observing aren't much bigger. And so that, you know, they might just be straight up coyotes. I mean, in any case, coyotes, like strictly coyotes, coyotes, interbred coyotes, like they all seem to do pretty well in cities. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. The idea is that, that they're hitting that an urban ha- urban environment is a is a rich ground for coyotes. Right. I think we got off track about that. We're like we're talking about the Wissigan Park, which is sure it has it. You know, it's, it's a beautiful immersive experience when you're there. You're like I. It feels like you're almost in the mountains. So, and you were thinking, oh, maybe these coyotes are there hunting, you know, deer hunting. They might just be denning in these areas and feeding in in garbage and eating small. Well, animals. They might be yeah. like they might be foraging in this in the in the streets. Yeah, and actually just denning in that, you know, or, or a combination of the two is more probably likely. easier it's, pickings behind a Wawa than it is like hunting it, rabbits. And if people don't know around the country or such world, Wawa is the greatest convenience store. <laughs> uh, Where the, are you from? I'm from Jersey. So there we you have go. You know, a lot of Wawas by us. We have a lot of Wawas by us you know, now. I will have to agree that with that. Then, I mean, if you've, if you go on the Wawa, you would never want to go to a 7-Eleven ever again. Ever. Oh no! All I wanted to say earlier, because I know we got on our Wawa track, is that with coyotes as well, um, be, we're talking about what they could be eating. Is that because they're so adaptable and they they're both behaviorally found to be active both at night and during the day? You know, we for all we know, they could be hunting a lot at night when there's less people around and going towards going for small mammals or anything that they can find. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think that's a given. I think we're gonna wrap up. We're gonna thank. Nelson. Thanks for having me here tonight, guys. We, we sort of invite these people who know nothing about this podcast and, like, we're not the wolves, but we sort of throw them to the wolves. You know, we like, throw them to the koi wolves. To the koi wolves. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, for the next episode, we're thinking we're going to hit urban squirrels and particularly this, the, the Project Squirrel out of Chicago um, and learn a little bit more about the history the present of squirrels in cities and some neat research into that. Trek coyotes ever do. Because I was, I was sort of thinking of it like, like seeing a lot of articles that that seem to be like, hey, we assume this, this, and this, and plug it into a model and see what happens. Oh, I thought you were talking. So, well, I was wondering about Nelson when it comes to modeling. Oh my god! Because <laughs> he's a good-looking guy. Nelson is is extremely. <laughs> he's probably the handsomest guest we've had so far. He's the handsomest guy in the room right now, for sure. Without a doubt. And recently, I had the pleasure of seeing him with his shirt off. Oh my god! Because <laughs> we went. Um, a pool party. We had a pool party, and um, is Nelson the kind of guy that looks for any excuse to take a shirt off, or is he? Like, <laughs> well, we were swimming. You were all swimming. Okay. And he took it off as we got to the pool, so he wasn't like walking around the whole. You know, so he's he's modest. He's all honked out. Yeah. He's, all right. He's like question your sexuality. Good looking.